Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today we embark on a captivating journey into the realm of psychedelic medicine. In the next half hour, we will be exploring the compelling world of Merrill David's Landau's award-winning research and work on this subject. Today's episode is brought to you by Wild Health and ShipStation. Our focus today lies on its burgeoning role in mental health. Specifically, we are exploring the profound impact, especially on the senior community of psychedelic medicine. The subject at hand is both revolutionary and deeply human. It merges cutting-edge science with ancient wisdom. At the core of our discussion is the use of substances like LSD, psilocybin, and ketamine. These are not just chemicals, they are keys, unlocking new doors in brain science. Merrill Davids Landau's work on psychedelic medicine offers hope, especially for those grappling with anxiety, depression, and the existential challenges of aging. Merrill Davids Landau has been reporting on this subject, and we have her today. She'll be our guide through this uncharted territory and will help us understand what she's learned and has been reporting on for the past year to year and a half. We will have links so that our audience can find out more about Meryl Davids Landau's work. But Meryl Davids Landau is a visionary writer. She brings clarity to complex science topics. Her insights shed light on how psychedelics are transforming therapy. Together, we will uncover the science behind these treatments. We will delve into the experiences of those who have journeyed through psychedelic therapy. And today, with Meryl Davids Landau, we will address the critical question, who will navigate this new frontier of medicine? Join us. Expand your understanding of how the older generation can find solace and healing. This episode promises enlightenment, compassion, and a glimpse into the future of wellness. Please join me in welcoming back to the Not Old Better Show, writer, author, Meryl Davids Landau. Meryl Davids Landau, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be here again. It's so great to talk to you again. Uh, We've talked a couple of times. Really, you're becoming an audience favorite, and we're going to talk about a subject today that you've written so thoroughly about, and I've had a chance to read your articles. One recently in the Washington Post, and a couple, then three from the National Geographic. We'll make sure that our audience can find those. But the subject of psychedelics is, I think, starting to really take hold in a lot of places, and you're finding that. But I, I think in my audience, there may be some unfamiliarity. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of psychedelic medicine and, and how it's emerging in healthcare, especially for those of us who might be unfamiliar with it specifically. Right. And I think for your audience, of which I am a member, <laughs> um, there's kind of two trains of thoughts on psychedelics. One are the people who remember, you know, the LSD tuning in, turning on 60s. Mm-hmm. And then slightly younger people who remember all of the just say no and drugs will fry your brains kind of, you know, very anti um, 
drug, uh, and anti-psychedelic messaging. But the third messaging, which is coming out now, is that the research has started back up on psychedelics. There was a fair amount of preliminary research done in the 1950s, which was starting to show that certain psychedelic drugs were really beneficial for quite a number of mental health conditions. And then when the drug was rescheduled, when all these drugs were rescheduled at Schedule 1, making them the most restricted drugs uh, in the U.S. and subsequently in most countries around the world, all that research came to a halt. So it was only in the last, you know, 10 years started, but really in the last five years or so, that a number of these compounds have been studied um, in the modern era, you know, with using contemporary science of, you know, double-blind, clinically controlled um, studies that are really starting to, again, show that some of these compounds are really beneficial when done in the right setting with all of the caveats you and I, I'm sure, will discuss. Um, it's not the same thing as going to a rave and taking some of these drugs. Um, but when done in a, in a controlled, you know, health-oriented setting, uh, can be really powerful for PTSD, for depression, for substance abuse, eating disorders. I mean, the list is long and growing of things that are being found to potentially benefit most of the research for most of the compounds are still in the early stages, still small studies, so a lot more research needs to happen. But the research that has been published to date is quite intriguing, and that's why I keep writing about it. Well, and congratulations on your work, because it's remarkable. The research is just really exceptional, and um, I do think it's something that we need to pay attention to. Which is leading? Are are we ahead on the science? Are we ahead on the perception? What needs to catch up with with what so that we kind of come together at the right place at the right time, so that psychedelics can be both administered correctly, uh, researched properly, but then applied in the proper settings to the right individuals? How is that kind of merging? So I think from from the general public's perception, it's mm-hmm. both of those things are happening. Some people have their excitement of, among some people have gotten ahead of the science, mm-hmm. but among other people, again, those you know who came of age or remember the '80s with all of the really intensive anti drug messaging, might be afraid of psychedelics. Um, I, I read one study recently where. They were talking to veterans about psychedelics because veterans is a particular audience with the high rates of PTSD and suicide where um, some of these drugs could potentially be very powerful. And, you know, some of them said they worry that, you know, it could damage their brain or they might lose their, their mind. I mean, these are messages that were pounded into people's heads um, during the, you know, during the anti-drug Crusade. So I think, um, you know, some people are overly afraid of them and some people are overly excited about them. And the middle of continuing to watch the science, waiting to see what the FDA does, the first drug, the first psychedelic called MDMA, which is known in, um, in the, on the street world or in clubs as ecstasy or molly. But when, you know, given in controlled doses in controlled settings, 
has been shown to be very helpful for PTSD. That drug was submitted to the FDA last month. And so if the FDA accepts the application as complete, which is not a guarantee, the um, MDMA could become the first psychedelic potentially to be approved in this country in in decades. So, um, again, it's, you know, the, the reality is it's not a panacea, but it's not the horrible drug it's been made out to be. And the research is very intriguing and very promising. Well, in fact, and you, you really are so prescient here. You, you've written in National Geographic in November of 2023 about brain injury and how LSD can open the mind literally. And ecstasy offers this unique treatment plan and, and can overcome some of these brain injuries and um, do so with some science-backed research. So this is really – it's something that's, that's coming together pretty quickly and I, I would imagine that in 2024 we're going to see more of this kind of science and it's going to impact a wider swath of individuals but you spent some time writing on the subject of end-of-life cancer patients too and and that's that's going to bring me to my question how how do some of these these substances psilocybin's one how, how does psilocybin help and aid in end-of-life cancer patients, because there's some, there's some fear reduction, some anxiety elimination, and in particular, you, you actually studied um, some, a, a Canadian therapy group to provide some of this research. Yeah, so that was my recent article in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. and um, it was based on a program that Canada has started um, a couple of years ago that they've kind of ramped up a little bit where they're uh, allowing people who have a terminal diagnosis or other very serious health condition uh, to be able to get psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, the psychedelic ingredient in magic mushrooms. They're, they're allowing people in the, in the group to get um, access to psychedelic therapy because, you know, if somebody tells you you have stage four cancer spread throughout your body you still could have months or years to live, but it's very hard to live happily knowing that you have stage four cancer that's going to kill you. So a lot of people who have a terminal diagnosis have a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, which is completely understandable, but it impacts their ability to be able to really live fully for whatever amount of time they have left. And so there's a program in Vancouver Island in British Columbia uh, called Roots to Thrive, which was um, taking advantage of this Canadian program and doing group psychedelic, um, psychedelic with psilocybin, which involves, um, you know, therapy sessions before and then one psilocybin session and then uh, therapy, psychotherapy sessions afterwards to kind of integrate and process what went on. Um, and I was uh, given access uh, to two people who were in that program, both of whom have stage four cancer, who allowed me to really follow their progress starting the months before and then going through their psychedelic session and then in the months after. And it really did make a difference, a huge difference to both of them. For one of the people named Brian, who's featured in my article, 
Uh, he had, you know, a fair amount of anxiety. He was a very calm person naturally, but he had a, a lot of anxiety that he felt was really interfering with his um, ability to live out the remaining time of his life. And the psychedelics really helped to calm that anxiety. And for the other woman who I spoke to at length named Kat, she really used the psychedelics to um, improve her own um, mental health in terms of recognizing what's important to her life, recognizing that it was important to her to kind of stand up for herself and not just be a doormat and let, you know, put other people first. And all of these things are bringing her a lot more joy uh, while she's, you know, still here living with her stage four cancer. And it also potentially helps people be less afraid of dying. This is something the literature has shown. There have been several studies where they've given psilocybin to people with end of life and really studied them closely. And because people have kind of a, an experience with, on the psychedelic where they feel connected to something larger than themselves, um, connected to other people, connected to the universe, connected to God, people describe it in different ways. And it's kind of similar, I think, to what pe some people experience during deep meditation but you really come to a sense that I'm not just my limited mind and body. And if you're facing death, I think, you know, the research is showing that can be very helpful to have that feeling because if you're more than your mind and body, then if you die, you're still going to be something. There's still going to be something there um, after the end. And so that um, can help make people less afraid of death. And that's what the two people, Brian and Kat and I spoke to at length for the Washington Post piece. That's how they felt that it, it really did make them a little bit afraid, less afraid of dying. I really got that from the piece in the Washington Post that Brian in particular, he's outdoors person. He wanted to do some fishing. He wanted to see his grown children, grandsons, spend time with friends. It seemed to be what I, what I might call palliative care at that point. It was anxiety reducing and it gave him kind of this sense that he could still do these things and he didn't have to focus on the pain. Yes. And, and some of the doctors who are affiliated with this program are palliative care doctors because um, they recognize that there's a limited amount of tools that they have to work with. And the psychedelics is potentially proven to be another very valuable tool. One of the doctors, this is not in my article because there was just so much information, I couldn't include everything. Mm -hmm. But one of the doctors um, who's involved with that program got involved because a patient of hers was a young mother in her 30s, dying of cancer. She was, you know, beside herself, not only with emotional pain, but with physical pain that was springing from the emotional pain. And the palliative care doctor who I interviewed um, really found there was nothing that she could give the person that was making any kind of a difference. And so she helped get the patient access to the psilocybin through this Health Canada waiver program. And after the woman had her psychedelic experience, she was completely transformed. I mean, the way this doctor was describing it to me was, you know, she was sitting up and getting up and and having a little bit of a of a life which she was completely not having before. And so between that amount of time until her death, uh, she was able to be much calmer, more joyful, um, 
and, and happier with her life. And that's what you want out of palliative care. That was the same with Brian, who did pass away in early December. And between the time he did the psychedelic in August and December, he described himself as being much more present, much more joyful, um, more connected to people. So that, that's really huge. Again, the literature is small in terms of the number of people who have been studied. And so these drugs do need to be studied more in depth to make sure. I mean, I think people who have a terminal diagnosis, especially if they're really, really towards the end of their life, you know, that the harm, the benefits versus harm question, I think, you know, there's less harm that can be done. But certainly within other groups of people, it's not 100% clear yet because of, you know, the amount of studies that have been done on psilocybin and LSD and some of the others are small. With MDMA, there's the most amount of research, and that's why they've submitted it to the FDA for approval. But, you know, you do have to be careful to balance what could be the potential harms versus the benefits physically. We'll be right back with guest Meryl Davids-Landau. And our subject today, Meryl's award-winning work on psychedelic medicine. We talk a lot about health here on the show. We talk about fitness. We talk about well-being, et cetera. And people constantly ask me, which are the best beneficial supplements? Or what's the best diet and exercise regimen for any number of issues? And while I try to provide as many useful tools here on the show as possible... At the end of the day, we know, and we need to really embrace this, that health is not one-size-fits-all. Introducing our sponsor, Wild Health, who offers personalized health care through a proactive and preventative approach called precision medicine. Wild Health isn't just another health trend. It's a revolution in personalized wellness. They use your unique genetics, lifestyle, biometrics to pinpoint exactly what your body needs. This means the right nutrition, exercise, and sleep specifically for you, not the masses. If stress is your battle, sometimes that's the case for me, know that you're not alone. Half of Wild Health's patients have improved their stress hormone levels with tailored health plans. This is the precision medicine that I mentioned at its best, and it works. Health guru Ben Greenfield's words, they ring true to me. Wild Health is set to change the world. If that doesn't spark your curiosity, well, what will? Wild Health's approach goes beyond quick fixes. They craft lifestyle-first plans aimed at your long-term health and vitality. My personal experience, their insights were invaluable in giving me clarity on my own health journey as I age. And remember, Wild Health is just a click away with their full virtual service across the United States, making your health their priority. Whether you have a specific health goal like weight loss, body composition, or improved energy, or broadly want to optimize your health and prevent disease, Wild Health tailors a care plan with lifestyle-first interventions rather than pills and prescriptions. In the simplest sense, all of this helps you age, helps you live longer, and my own report was eye-opening and helpful in guiding my own individualized care plan. Wild Health is generously extending Not Old Better Show listeners 20% off the cost of membership with code NOB. 
Head over to wildhealth.com slash NOB and use code NOB at checkout. All of this will be in our show notes, but make this commitment to yourself and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash NOB. Just one more quick message from our sponsor today, ShipStation, and then we will be right back with our episode on psychedelic medicine with award-winning writer Meryl Davids Landau. Ever found yourself at the checkout only to balk at the shipping cost and speed? You're not alone there. That's why I switched to ShipStation, and it's been a game changer for our business. My wife and I own a dance studio in addition to being in business for myself here on my radio show and podcast, and so we are all too familiar with shipping costs. I'll tell you this, ShipStation has been a godsend. It's a seamless experience that's both affordable to us and it's super efficient to all of you, our customers, ensuring that any of our orders are managed in a single dashboard that's a breeze to navigate. I mean, this just makes it so simple. From my personal experience, I went for it with the ShipStation free trial and quick setup that's so easy. It allows you to try everything out before you commit or get started right away. And in so doing, I have slashed our shipping costs dramatically. We're talking discounts of up to 89% off standard rates from USPS and UPS. This isn't just about savings, though. It's about passing some value on to our customers and staying competitive. So I mentioned the dashboard. It is so easy to set everything up. The automation part of this is right there at your fingertips with ShipStation. You set it up once and you just watch it as it manages orders, it prints labels, and it sends delivery notifications automatically to your customers. And there's unmatched affordability. You will see the costs just get cut right before your eyes without cutting corners. ShipStation offers discounted rates that significantly undercut standard shipping prices, making it the smart financial choice for any of your online businesses. And you know, as we're getting a little bit older, some of these tools really, really matter. So does the community. You are going to be working with a proven growth partner. You're joining a community of over 130,000 customers that have expanded their e-commerce ventures with ShipStation. Plus, with a customer retention rate that sees 98% of users staying beyond a year, you know you are in trusted company. Ready to streamline your shipping costs and save big? Well, use promo code NOB for a free, I mentioned that, a free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com. Discover why ShipStation is the shipping partner you'll want for life. Check it out. All of this will be in our show notes. And now back with our featured guest today, award-winning writer Meryl Davids Landau on the subject of psychedelic medicine. Meryl Davids Landau is our guest, is a returning guest to the program and is an award-winning writer, has written a multi-piece I think it's a it, it's just a, a wonderful collection of um, updates. I think about this subject, uh, new research that you've done on the subject of psychedelics, which we're talking about today. I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about some of the regulatory issues that surround psychedelics. Where do people go to? 
you know, get this treatment? How available is it? What kinds of things are they going to face when they, you know, request this or try to learn more about it and whether they can receive this kind of treatment? So in the United States and in most countries around the world, psychedelic drugs are still not legal. And so most people in the U.S. who have taken psychedelics have either done it underground, they call it, because when the drugs were made illegal in 1970, there were some people who had been using it therapeutically with their patients who illegally continued to do so and to train other people. And so there are a fair number of people in this country who will do psychedelics with you in a safe way, but it's not a legal way. Um, in some other countries, uh, psychedelics are legal. And so there are groups, uh, including veteran groups, which I'm writing about uh, currently, who are taking groups of people to other countries for retreats in Mexico, in Jamaica, in Peru, where some of the different drugs are legal. Um, and they're having the experience there. And then Oregon passed a measure in 2020 legalizing psilocybin mushrooms. Hmm. They took about two years to set up the regulations and to certify the labs that are growing the mushrooms and the people who are administering. So uh, only in the past six months or so have they started actually um, people have actually started having psilocybin therapy in Oregon. Um, and while, but while it's legal in Oregon and Colorado also passed um, regulation legalizing it, although they haven't set up, finished setting up the apparatus yet, so you can't go to Colorado yet for it, it's still illegal federally, which means the federal government, kind of similar to cannabis, the federal government could come in at any time and arrest people or create problems um, for people using or providing the psychedelics. Um, so until it's legalized federally, which um, you know some people have been advocating for some time, um, it's still a it's still a wait and see. But if the FDA approves the MDMA that's mm -hmm. been submitted, that would be the first psychedelic that could be offered more widely by doctors, by therapists, by people who have been trained, and there are a number of training programs that are already training um, therapists and others how to facilitate psilocybin therapy because it's very specific. You know, it's different from either regular psychotherapy or it's very different from going to your doctor and getting a prescription for an antidepressant. The drug experience itself can last, you know, five to ten hours, mm. and you need a, a therapist there with you the whole time. So the amount of resources that are involved in the, pe the training that people need, um, you know, is definitely going to be something to watch. Um, but there are people being currently being trained. And uh, if the FDA does approve MDMA, then people would be able to go to their therapist potentially or go to a trained therapist and have MDMA facilitated psychotherapy. Uh, especially to help with PTSD, where the research is the strongest. And you say in your Nat Geo, one of your Nat Geo articles, that um, the demand for these trained professionals is is becoming urgent. And 
And the training, it, it was interesting to me because I think of psychiatric training, psychological training, but this is slightly different, the training that you might offer someone during their experience is perhaps to make them feel safe, to be soothing. Maybe describe that a little bit to our audience, how that part of it works and how important it is. Yeah, and I do want to say the demand is expected to be very robust expected. and outstrip the supply of trained people because it's not legalized. Yeah, yet. so once that's the demand, the demand is really only happening in Oregon at the moment. And yeah. even there, demand is outstripping the you know, I've heard they have a wait list uh-huh. of thousands of people who want this service. So, uh-huh. um, so uh, yeah, the training is very different. I, uh, for one article that I did for National Geographic where I looked into the training programs and people who are doing them, you know, a psychiatrist said to me, like, this is not what we're used to providing. We're used to providing a medication and then people take it and they go home. And then uh-huh. over the course of months, they get better and they come back and we tweak it. This is really emerging of medication and psychotherapy in a way that we haven't seen in our medical system before. And so the training really is a new kind of training that is being created. And when we talk about the regulatory issues and the safety issues, there's one more drug that I do need to mention, and that's ketamine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ketamine yes, is yeah. not cons- yeah, ketamine is not considered really a psychedelic or a true psychedelic because it's a drug that's an anesthesia that does have some psychedelic-like properties in the short term. It lasts about a half an hour compared to these other drugs, which last, you know, as I said, five to 10 hours. But a lot of places are starting to advertise that they offer psychedelic-assisted therapy because they are offering ketamine. So one, if you're outside of Oregon and you see a place advertising psychedelic-assisted therapy, they aren't using a true psychedelic. They are using ketamine. And ketamine can be valuable for people. Um, There's a small body of research because it was approved as an anesthesia. It's already on the market. Doctors and psychiatrists and others can get it. And so there wasn't the impetus to do a lot of research for its mental health benefits or its potential mental health benefits. Um, but a lot of places are advertising it and using it well beyond safety measures that the FDA would like to see or well beyond what the research has shown it could be beneficial for. So I think with ketamine, it really is a buyer beware situation. Mm -hmm. If somebody has severe depression, if somebody has suicidal thinking, ketamine could potentially be helpful for them, but you really need to make sure you're doing it in a place that takes safety seriously and that takes follow-up psychotherapy seriously so that it's not, you know, I mean, some places, even some like wellness spas are starting to offer ketamine. Personally, I think that's really scary. And telehealth, some places are offering, well, they'll do telehealth and send it to you at home and you can just take the oral version at home by yourself, which is also very scary. And the FDA recently came out with a warning against that. It seems to be a bit lax with uh, some of its use and even availability and uh, kind of promotion behind it. Yes, because it's a cheap drug, because it's generic, it's been around a long time. So really a lot of places can get it, just set up a shingle and call themselves a psychedelic 
therapy setting, and because there is a lot of interest in psychedelics, they're kind of riding those coattails. Because like I said, ketamine's not even really a psychedelic. It just can make people have that kind of out-of-body sensation for a period of time. So. Well, interestingly, Brian Mayer was 62, uh, featured in your Washington Post article, Suffering from Prostate Cancer, Advanced Stages of Prostate Cancer. So my next question really goes to kind of audience demographics, and really most of my audience is 60 plus. I wonder if you saw a particular distinction in some of the research that you did about who's taking some of these medications, particularly as they become a little bit more mainstream, what what might develop for elderly in use of some of these medications? So whether people who are older have a different response to the drug mm-hmm. than people who are younger is something, again, entirely unresearched. That needs research. Um, whether there are more dangers in people who are older is something that has not been researched because most of the studies have been small and haven't really broken it out to that degree. So I do think people will need to be careful, even if it's legalized, people will need to be careful and wait for more aftermarket research in order to really see um, if you have certain condition, medical conditions or you know, physical conditions or if you are um, a lot older, um, potentially, you know, there could be risks involved that aren't known at this point. But in terms of if psychedelics does prove helpful for a lot of mental health conditions that older people could certainly have, depression is high in older people, PTSD and, you know, older veterans is still uh, fairly high, and also in other people who have other kinds of trauma in their life. And also, as you mentioned before, in one of my articles, I looked at psychedelic research for brain diseases. Mm-hmm. So that's not mental health conditions, but you know, people are looking into potentially would it help Parkinson's and would it help a traumatic brain injury that somebody got from a car accident or from something. Um, so, uh, and again, the very early preliminary research is pretty promising that potentially it could help. Um, it could help with these because it is, it's how exactly how psychedelics work in the brain is still being researched. But what's kind of becoming clear is that it really helps the brain expand, not physically expand, but, but the brain gets pretty set Mm. and psychedelics seem to kind of reopen learning windows and brain growth windows that were previously closed because you reach a certain age. I mean, all of us can think of in terms of windows, um, you know, if you're trying to learn a second language, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a kid, you can pick it up very quickly. But by the time you're past your teens, that language window kind of starts to shut. And so if you try to pick up that second language when you're much older, it's much harder. And it seems that psychedelics may help open those windows for longer reopen those windows that have been closed. And so stroke victims is a particular area of interesting research because there, right after the stroke, some of those windows do reopen again, but then they close. So that's why people tend to get whatever benefits they're going to get from rehab after stroke tend to last only like within six months 
And then after that, it's very hard to have further improvements. But perhaps psychedelics could open that window for longer. And then a person could potentially have um, more opportunity to regain some of the function they lost. But again, that's all in early research. And we don't really know uh, how that will play out in people when larger numbers of people are studied. It's all it all sounds at least very promising, but you used the term just a moment ago in respect to ketamine, you know, patient beware, buyer beware. And so starting with your articles, which offer just a very thorough review of where things stand currently and some of the risks and as well as the benefits of all of this, where else should families go when considering psychedelic therapy? What, what other places should they begin their research to find out more about this and how it might apply to them and their family members? Well, I think if the drugs do get approved uh, federally, then there probably will be pretty good information on government websites mm. looking at, you know, how the drugs should safely be used and what, you know, it's potential if the FDA does, re- does approve MDMA, it does so with restrictions that it has to be offered, you know, with a therapist in the room. It has to be offered along with therapy before and after. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's an unknown how it would be approved. Mm-hmm. But certainly people should not be taking um, information that they find online, on, you know, Twitter and even on some podcasts where there are people who are really strong advocates for mm-hmm. psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be careful not not to take that information as the last word. I think it's very important to seek out research or, or articles that are based on the research um, that really kind of consider all of it. Because, you know, there are people who've been advocating for psychedelics to be legalized for decades, even before the research mm-hmm. showing the, you know, this, this round of research showing the promise. Um, medically has been available. And so you do have to be careful with some of the proselytizers or maybe playing down potential risks or overhyping what is known so far about the benefits. Yeah, you 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 referenced, you didn't mention, but but the name that I recall from you know long ago was Timothy Leary as being someone who mm-hmm. was almost a zealot about about the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question for you, Meryl Davis Landau. I I wonder if you'd tell us briefly about what you researched in terms of the future of psychedelic medicine. The, the, the terms um, are good. It's really great to hear you talk through all of this and, and um, especially the training needed and, and how we need to be more aware. One of the terms that, that I found outside of some of the research that I was doing around this interview with you is the term of microdosing. What does that mm-hmm. mean? And how does that kind of fit into the future of psychedelic medicine? Maybe leave us with that. So microdosing is taking very small amounts, typically of LSD, but could be of other psychedelics, so that you maybe feel a little bit, a little bit of the drug, but you don't have the full on I can't function because I'm so busy looking at the beautiful sky for the next 10 hours Uh um, kind of reaction that people might get um, under certain psychedelics. Other psychedelics, by the way, might have really intensively negative experiences. I spoke to someone for a different article that I'm writing who used ayahuasca, which is a a drug um, used primarily in South America where you vomit a lot and sweat a lot. And it's not a very pleasant experience to be on the drug, um, but potentially has benefits afterwards. But even the drugs that have very positive 
experiences, you know, can take a lot out of your life. You need the whole day. And so microdosing is something that a lot of people have kind of drawn to, and the numbers of people who are microdosing is up substantially in recent years, um, where people claim it helps them with their productivity or with their mood, um, but they don't. But they can go back. They can go on with their regular life. It's not impacting your life the way taking a high dose of the drug is. The amount of research that's been done on microdosing is almost none. Hmm. So, <laughs> so I think you know a lot of people are you know going on the word of their friend or their you know cousin who tells them how great microdosing is, and it may be that it's really helpful for people. Uh, some people think that the benefits of microdosing are more. Um, because people believe it's going to be helpful for them. Mm. And so, um, you know, the placebo effect, they call it, um, that you're taking the drug and you think it's going to be beneficial. But there's probably less risk of taking a microdose because you're not taking such a high dose, but you are taking it over a long period of time. So whether that has particular health, yes. So whether that has a negative impact on a person's yes. health is really a, a big unknown. So all, the- all of this is, Yes, with all of this, there's a lot of great promise out there with psychedelics, but a lot of it still remains to be studied and proven to be safe and effective. Meryl Davids Landau, it's so good to talk to you. I hope that you'll come back. (laughs) We are developing a nice conversation, (laughs) you and I, and I really appreciate your time. But this, as it becomes more mainstream, as we learn more about it, as you're doing additional work around this, we'd, we'd love to have you back. We will provide links, just as we've done previously with your excellent work. But in particular, we want to cite the Washington Post article, the National Geographic articles, plural, that you've written, all the great stuff that you're doing. Congratulations on this work. It's so helpful. And um, I think I think our audience of older adults, really, as they consider psychedelic therapy, they need to do, do so with their eyes open. And, you know, as you say, patient beware. And uh, Meryl Davis-Lando has been so helpful in giving us some of these uh, risks and benefits. But thank you, Meryl. Good to talk to you. I hope the rest of your day is well. And um, please do come back. Thanks, Paul. It's great talking to you as well. My thanks to our sponsors today, Wild Health and ShipStation. Please support our sponsors as they, in turn, support the show. My thanks to Meryl Davis-Lando. Especially grateful for her work in the realm of psychedelic medicine. Thank you so much, Meryl, again. Please check out our links for more information about Meryl Davids Landau's work and her excellent reporting on the subject of psychedelic medicine. My thanks to you, our wonderful audience on radio and podcast. Please be well. Be safe. Remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Next week.